introduce you to Mark Tanner, who is the Bishop of Berwick-upon-Tweed, the most northerly bishop in the Church of England by sea, because you're practically in Scotland. I am. We are the only bit of England north of the Tweed. There we go. Now, tell us a bit about how you got to this position. So, tell us first how you became a Christian, and then I'll ask you about ministry. Yeah, uh, yes, gladly. Uh, so, I grew up in a Christian household, um, although I suppose, looking back, it was probably more nominally Christian than actively Christian, at least to start with. Yeah. Uh, when, Because my parents had grown up Plymouth Brethren and then fallen away. Uh, when I was about five, they got that guilt thing. My sister was three at the time, and they started taking us to Sunday school, which was Baptist in South London. And I remember at the age of eight taking home two ways to live with my friend Simon after a kind of event in the evening and kneeling down by his bed and both of us prayed the prayer. And when my dad picked us up, or me up rather, I remember saying to him, it feels like my feet can't touch the ground. And, and for me, that's really vital because although my faith has grown and matured in all sorts of ways over the years, at its heart, it's that childlike and sometimes childish, actually, trust in the Lord who is there through thick and thin. Uh, so I, I don't despise the faith, faith of the young. And one of the things at the toughest times in my life uh, that has seen me through has not been the clever ideas. It's been that deep simplicity, that, that holding on to Jesus like a child will. What a wonderful story. Yeah. That's, isn't that great? I'm trying to also locate you now in a tribe, but that's very, <laughs> that's very difficult from that story. It's sort of about two ways to live. I'm, I'm going to say some more about that in a bit, actually. Yeah. And then um, tell us about your path into ministry. And, and what you've done as a, as a yeah, minister. Yeah, well, I knew I was going to go into ministry age 14, um, so I was with... You knew that? Yeah, I did, I'll tell you how, because I was with um, School CU, uh, and we'd gone to Spring Harvest. There you go, there's a bit of a tribe. Uh, but, uh, I I'm don't... locating <laughs> you on Mark's 32 <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, And a great big youth event, any of you who've been to these kind of things will know it. And the guy at the front said, God is calling some of you here tonight into full-time Christian ministry. Now, I'm a mathematician by first background, so I'm really logical. And my head was saying, uh, you are too young this is an emotional atmosphere you can't make this kind of decision and my heart was saying yes but I'm calling you into full-time Christian ministry so I went forward on that night I was prayed for I had no idea what it would look like if you'd have told me then I was going to be an Anglican let alone I was going to be a bishop I just would have <laughs> thought you crazy yes. um, but honestly I was called to preach uh, called to uh, present the gospel particularly to those who don't yet know him taught to teach the scriptures and that's been the calling that's then seen me through I became an Anglican by accident when I was at Oxford uh, through the ministry of St Aldate's um, and uh, I've, I've just kind of followed where the Lord's led and so you where did you train Cramner Hall. Is Cramner. there anywhere else? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, some people here agree with you on that. Only because he's a former student and I paid him well. Where was your curacy? Uh, I served curacy on the Wirral. Both of my kids were born there. They're plastic scousers. Um, so if you know the Wirral just south of, uh, just south of Liverpool, uh, there's a great hospital there which backs onto fields and we'd gone back so that by that stage I'd moved to be vicar of the Red Light District in Doncaster, which was quite an experience. Wow. We'd gone back to visit some friends and we were driving across the field, uh, sorry, across the road behind the field behind the hospital and I pointed across the fields and I said to the kids, that's where you were born. And my son Jonathan, who's now end of second year at Oxford, other universities are available, but um, we've just followed that as a family. Uh, I said, that's where you were born. He said, are you sure, Daddy? I said, yeah, I'm not going to forget there. that, believe me. <laughs> I said, why? He said, mm, it's just a bit big for a stable, he said. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. So you there. Then you went to Doncaster as an incumbent straight yeah, after that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then after that, uh, and then I went to uh, Holy Trinity in Ripon. So I was vicar of Ripon, 
uh, spent some time as an army chaplain there as well, which was a, a very unforeseen thing. At school, we had a CCF. I went to a posh school, combined cadet force, and I refused to join because I was convicted that I shouldn't. You know, thou shalt not murder, therefore I will not. Right. So to come and do army chaplaincy work later, again, was a real move of God. But it was that sense of these people are in your parish and they are lost without me. Um, are you prepared to go to them? Yes, Lord, I am. Uh, so I was there, and I was involved in New Wine um, as well, uh, regionally and, and, and nationally. And then I had a very, very unexpected call to run Cramner Hall. Uh, I'd only been vicar in Ripon for four years. I'd anticipated staying there 20. It was just a great job. And honestly, it felt like God kind of reached down, grabbed me by the collars, and went, <laughs> um, and I could tell you the story, but um, it was a quite extraordinary thing. And now you're a bishop. Mm -hmm. what, what is the biggest difference between that previous ministry you've had and being a bishop, because now the buck stops with you in some ways. Um, yes. What, what, is it, what would you want to tell your old, younger self about the episcopate, yeah. about being a bishop, that that younger self didn't know or, or needed to know? I think that's really interesting. I think the thing I would tell my younger self, if, if, if they, he were to know that he was going to become a bishop, was concentrate on the roots so the most important spiritual discipline I have ever had and the most important spiritual discipline I have now is get out of bed. If you need to make yourself a cup of tea, do, but let that be the only thing that gets between you and opening the scriptures. So get out of bed, even if you're knackered, open the scriptures, say your prayers and get on with the rest of the day. And actually, I'm, I'm sorry to be just blunt about it, but it really is that simple and it absolutely is that vital. If you've looked Jesus in the eye first thing in the morning, um, it's not a magic wand, it's not, it's not kind of Harry Potter, but actually things fall into place. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And it's surprising how often when things uh, kind of blow up and you think, do you know, I just haven't prayed about it. It's the lesson I learned when I was a kid. So I think those are the things. Get your roots right and keep them deep. Um, surround yourself with good Christian friends because when you become a bishop, your tribes actually function very differently. That last session was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I just, it was absolutely spot on brilliant. It's really interesting being a bishop who's grown up through many of the tribes in evangelicalism. And one of the reasons you'll find it difficult to place me is because I, I actually have roots in a lot of tribes. But most of them react to bishops differently. And as evangelical bishops, we're kind of a member of every tribe and no tribe. So the thing I would say to my ordained self is, how about being nice to your bishops? <laughs> cut, cut them some slack, love them, pray for them and encourage them. Well, that's why we love having you here. Thank you. It's great to have you. Yeah, and thanks. it's great to have invited bishops every year to Jake yeah, to you. speak to us and address us. Yeah. Um, and it's great to have you again. I wonder, we've got a bit of time. Is, are there questions you have for Mark before he speaks to us about being a bishop? Should you go to another theological college? Uh, why should you choose Cram? Have you got any questions for Mark before he speaks? Yeah. Yeah. How can we pray for you? For me personally or for us? Um, the thing I want you to pray for more than anything else, and this is just my standard answer because it's deeply true, is that I will love Jesus more tomorrow than I do today. Um, and it is so easy when suddenly you're surrounded by church politics to get the idea that faith is around church. And of course, the church matters. The church is the bride of Christ. We all know that. Um, but actually, if we are not clinging on to Jesus, where are we? Uh, for us as a family, my daughter's just leaving home. She's off to read medicine, which is lovely. Uh, but it means my wife and I are alone for the first time in 20 years, which is just wonderful. But again, it's a change of, change of rhythm. It's, it's, so it's, it's that kind of carrying on moving. Um, and then finally, for fruitfulness. And I'll say a bit more later on, but I'm in a diocese which is not... Um, 
uh, perhaps the most fluent in evangelism that you might imagine. Um, and actually, 811,000 people in the diocese, of whom uh, probably about 20,000 have an active faith. That means there's almost 800,000 people on our watch who go tonight, to bed tonight without any hope. That, that's my prayer. Yeah. Any other questions or anything that you want to ask? Well, then why don't we just pray for you now and thank then we'll you. hand over to you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Mark. Thank you for um, saving him, for bringing him into the fellowship of your church as a disciple of the Lord Jesus at that young age. Thank you for calling him into ministry in the church and for equipping him for a lifetime of ministry. Thank you for all you've done in him and all that you've done through him in these many uh, different ministry positions. We pray also for him as a bishop, that you'd give him faithfulness to your words, clarity and boldness in all that he says and does as a bishop. And most of all, as he's asked us, we pray that you'd help him to love the Lord Jesus more and more each day and that that love would overflow to others and that he would be abounding in good works and have a fruitful ministry up there in the far north. We pray that there would be much gospel fruits for the long term as a result of his Episcopal ministry there. Please equip him for um, his ministry of prayer and teaching and preaching and bless all that he does, all his endeavours, for your great glory. Yeah. We pray also that now you would speak to us as he opens up the scriptures for us. Please again give him clarity and boldness in all he says. Give us attentive hearts and minds to accept your word, to believe it, and I pray for all the challenges, encouragements, provocations that we might hear now, that we might hear you speaking to us um, for our good and for the good of those that we minister to and speak to in your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What marvellous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But my friends, that's exactly who we are children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we will see him. And in seeing him, we will become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Christ's life as a model for our own. Make no mistake, all who indulge in a sinful life are dangerously lawless, for sin is a dangerous corruption of God's order. Surely you know that Christ showed up in order to get rid of sin. There is no sin in him, and sin is not part of his program. No one who lives deeply in Christ makes a practice of sin. None of those who do practice sin have taken a good look at Christ. They've got him all backward. So, my dear children, don't let anyone divert you from the truth. It's the person who acts right who is right, just as we see it lived out in our righteous Messiah. 
Those who make a practice of sin are straight from the devil, the pioneer in the practice of sin. The Son of God entered the scene to abolish the devil's ways. People conceived and brought into life by God don't make a practice of sin. How could they? God's seed is deep within them, making them who they are. It's not in the nature of the God-begotten to practice and parade sin. Here's how you tell the difference between God's children and the devil's children. The one who won't practice righteousness, righteous ways isn't from God, nor is the one who won't love his brother or sister. It's a simple test. For this is the original message we heard. We should love one another. We mustn't be like Cain, who joined the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? because he was deep in the practice of evil, while the acts of his brother were righteous. So don't be surprised, friends, when the world hates you. This has been going on a long time. The way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know very well that eternal life and murder do not go together. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. That's why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And this is the only way we'll know we are truly living, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For our God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we are free and bold before God. We're able to stretch out our hands and receive what we asked for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command, to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command. As we keep his commands, we live deeply and surely in him, and he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us, by the spirit he gave us. For those of you who haven't caught on, that is 1 John chapter 3, and the passage that we will be looking at together I've just read it from the message uh, version, uh, although I love it, I hesitate to call it a translation. But I've done so with no introduction because I wanted you to hear it with your heart as well as uh, with your head. So let me just hand this out. This has the passage down the middle and then the NRSV translation on the uh, left and the message on the right. 
Incidentally, I hope it's all right to use the, e the NRSV as our, my main translation this morning. I did think about using the ESV, not least because when I was recently at the Vatican, no, I really was, I discovered that the ESV is the version in English that the Vatican use of the scriptures as well. Uh, so clearly it's got a kind of broad cont uh, um, uh, following. Can I say uh, thank you, thank you Lee, uh, for your invitation. It's really, really good to be with you uh, today. As you've heard, uh, I'm uh, Mark Tanner, I'm the Bishop of Berwick. Uh, not Berwick, as 10 Downing Street seem to want to pronounce it on the rare occasions that they talk to me. And contrary to what the church commissioners might think, it is Berwick-upon-Tweed, as in that place right in the north. It's nice to be in a place which neither your government nor your church knows fully where you are, lest you are in danger of thinking you have anybody of significance speaking to you right at the moment. Please don't feel like you have failed your Anglicanism quiz if you didn't even know that there was a Bishop of Berwick. That's because although I'm not the first Bishop of Berwick, my predecessor, Bishop Thomas, passed away a few years ago, by which I mean he went to be with the Lord in 1572 when William Shakespeare was just six years old. It really is quite nice to be in a job where people don't know your predecessor. <laughs> Although I say that, there are a few organists in the north of the diocese. <laughs> uh, as you've heard, I'm married. I have one wife and two children. I'll try to get that number the right way around, lest I, dose, don't, uh, lest I cause some kind of scandal in the church. And I grew up, came to faith through the Baptist uh, church. It's quite strange, therefore, for me, moving in Anglican evangelical circles, because my formation actually was around the Baptist church, and it took me some time of coming uh, into kind of adult things of faith before I realized that I really was an evangelical, just because I kind of grew up uh, in that particular way of looking at things. And I have to say, therefore, sometimes I find Anglican evangelicalism, it, I just need to get my head back around the fact that it's a political thing as well as a theological thing, uh, which is partly, I think, why I found the tribal uh, uh, session uh, last time just so helpful. My own thinking about evangelicalism really um, began, I think, with listening to a chap called Richard Forster uh, speaking at the Baptist Mainstream College in the mid, uh, conference rather, in the mid-80s. He described evangelicalism as having five key marks, the mark of the uh, con uh, consciousness of the reality of sin, of the centrality of the cross, of the need for conversion, and of the real bodily future return of Christ, and of the centrality of the scriptures, of our reliance on the Bible. And I will come back a couple of times this morning to one great phrase that he used, namely that of evangelicals as those with a Protestant head and a pietist heart. Evangelicals as those with a Protestant head and a pietist heart. Hold that thought because I will come back to it as an explanatory note as we journey through 1 John chapter 3. But before we get back there, may I just make two introductory comments which I've been aware of as I've prepared for this morning and I want to highlight them as actually they are great fears that I have for the evangelical movement within the Church of England. Firstly, I have not chosen this passage for you. As quite often happens to me when I get invited places to do a Bible reading, um, although incidentally, being in Newcastle Diocese, which is not known as the hotbed of evangelicalism in the church, I told my colleagues that I was going to do the Bible reading at a conference, and they said, why did they need a bishop to read the Bible? And it made me realize, actually, we do speak in our own uh, code. Uh, but I got the invitation saying, choose a passage that perhaps you've spoken on or that you think would be good. And I have to say, although I'm... 
I don't uh, impute any kind of wrongness to the question being asked of me. I personally feel profoundly uncomfortable every time an invitation comes in that way because the real danger that I find is that I form my faith in my own image. Richard Forster at that Baptist Mainstream College conference that I talked about earlier uh, said the problem with evangelicalism today, this is in the mid-80s, is that people form their own pet theory and then they ransack the scriptures in search of evidence for it. They form their own pet theory and then they ransack the scriptures in search of evidence for it. I am very averse to choosing my own Bible passage because I believe that as evangelicals we are first and foremost people of the scriptures, which means we need to sit under them before we can stand over them and speak about them to others. Within a few days of each other, about a year ago, I got two invitations, one to do this and the second to do the Bible reading at the Evangelical Bishops Meeting, uh, which was meeting in January. And so I simply took the morning prayer New Testament passage for that particular day, which was 1 John chapter 3. That is why we are uh, looking at this passage today. But let me just note for for you that as I journey around different evangelical constituencies, it seems to me more and more that the Bible is not the thing that is central to our practice. It's often central to our conversation, but not to our practice. When I was undergraduate at Oxford, one of the great things we did, particularly with Wycliffe Ordinands, was to read together, which basically meant you got together and did one-on-one -on -one Bible study, usually looking through Romans, and there you'd have an Ordinand who was just a kind of bit ahead of you, uh, and they would read the Bible. I, I just don't know of, I mean, probably it's still happening in some places, but I just don't hear of it happening. And my son, who is now second year undergraduate, end of second year undergraduate at Oxford, has never once had that offer made to him to despite the fact that he's been an OIQ rep, by way of example. Why do I say that? Not to criticise anyone, but to wave a red flag saying, look, we really should be known as Bible bashers because we are Bible people more than anything else. Throw all manner of criticisms at me, but some of them I will hold my hands up and smile and say, yes, please call me a Bible basher because I'm a Bible person more than anything else. It's the case that Bible reading notes sales have gone massively downhill. It's the case that when you stand up and talk about morning quiet times, you find people going, oh, that's a really good idea. Yes, it is a good idea. We are Bible people. So this, I'm not advocating the lectury per se, but is a passage which I've taken at the behest of others rather than choosing it for myself. Secondly, I just want to know that this is a passage which is set in relationalism or relationship. I grew up assuming that this was a central feature of evangelicalism, or at least of Christian faith as I knew it. My four grandparents were converted into the Plymouth Brethren. My parents came to faith there, and then, as I said earlier, uh, kind of slipped away before they came back to faith later. If you are a Brethren, and you go from one assembly to another, you take <coughs> with you a letter of introduction, as there's some evidence happened in New Testament times as well. Why? In order that the brothers might know that you are a person who is genuinely of faith. This sense of relationalism actually is central to so much of our history, but the danger of a social media age is that we lose it left, right, and center. Conversion, I want to suggest first and foremost, is a relationship to Christ that leads us into relationship to our brothers and sisters. It's why fellowship is absolutely necessary, whatever the initial convert might think today. I think there's a danger that as we come back and rediscover this, that we uh, fall into an overly domesticated understanding of the Trinity, but even being aware of that danger, 
we need still to locate ourselves in loving relationship. It is Forster's link between the Protestant head and the pietist heart which is essential, and I sometimes worry that we as a movement use that, lose rather that link. However, time does not go on, and this is not a theological lecture, so let's come to 1 John chapter 3. Firstly, I want to suggest to you that there is a definite shape to this passage, and what I'm going to try to do for you is simply skip through the passage and make one or two observations as I go along, because it's too long to give a detailed exegesis of every single verse that you might be glad to hear me say. I want to suggest to you, as I've indicated down the left-hand side of your sheet, uh, that we have an almost chiastic structure, although please remember that we are reading John, not Paul, and therefore I want to argue that it's very unlikely that it's actually a chiasm. If the synoptic gospels are written as narrative, and Paul writes as an almost philosophical thinker, one of my uh, theologian friends says, John writes more as a choreographer. In other words, his concepts kind of dance in and out of focus in a way that helps us reflect not just on what they are, but also on the rather complex interrelation between them. So although I set it out as a chiasm, and I think it's helpful to think of it partially in that way. Remember that this is a shaped dance in which things will be in focus, out of focus, referred to and danced around in a deliberate theological piece of artistry. So verses 1 to 3 are all around identity and belonging, how much we need to hear that in this day and age. Verses 4 to 10 we start talking about sin and righteousness. Verses 11 to 17 we are particularly focusing on love and this is the centre of the chiasm, the hinge around which the passage will turn. We move back in verses 11 to 22 around truth and conscience as we pick up again that great theme of sin and righteousness. And then we finish again in 23 and 24 with our identity and belonging, which is utterly in Christ and in Christ also by the Spirit and thus in the Father. So let's start with the first three verses, if we may. Please note that the whole of this passage is set in what I like to call the wide-eyed wonder of our relationship with God, the utter mind-boggling brilliance of what Christ has done for us. Another one of the insults that people can throw at me and I will hold up my hands and say, yeah, you're right, is when people say of me that I am happy clappy. Because I have to say to you, I am happy and there is so much to be happy about. See what love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. This is brilliant beyond brilliant. We are happy people and occasionally we clap our hands. Because we have more than the world has yet begun to realize is even possible to have. Please allow this passage to touch your hearts. Because if it isn't touching your hearts, then it isn't fully affecting your life. You have here a prize beyond measure. It's like you're a man digging in a field and you discover treasure which is of such value that you will sell everything that you have in order to buy this piece of land, in order that you might buy this bit of treasure which is infinitely more valuable than a hoard of Norman coins if you've been listening to the news, which you probably haven't because you've been here at JEG. Allow it to touch your heart as well as your mind. Wide-eyed wonder and worship 
worship at what God has done for us. If you fail to grasp this, you will never grasp the scriptures or our faith. There are lots of soppy things that this doesn't mean, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that the entirety of our faith kind of contracts into some soppy emotionalism. But I am saying to you, just as some other people have said to you, that as you respond in love to God, you are to love him not just with all your mind and with all of your action, but with all of your heart in the modern as well as the ancient sense as well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Do not lose the simplicity of your faith, whether you, like me, came to faith as a child and have known what it is, to follow with that childlike simplicity or whether you need the humility to learn from those who are children to come back once again to kick off your shoes and to dance barefoot in the sand with the one who loves you more than you have yet begun to realize however long you have been walking with him see what love the father has given us verse one we are called children verse uh, two one and two we are children Others will not understand, but it does not for a moment rob us of that eternal reality. More than that, we are yet to step fully into this reality. We are God's children. Now, verse 2, what we will be has not yet been revealed. This is an ongoing, growing thing. One of the things, please, to do in your quiet times, because I sense I'm uh, preaching to the choir with that particular meme, is to just spend some time asking that the Lord will so soften your heart that the wonder and goodness of this melts your heart every morning be those who who seek the lord that your heart will be engaged both in joy and in pain when i moved from um, upton on the Wirral, where I was curate, uh, to Doncaster, I knew that the Lord was calling me there. But I have to say it was a really tough place for reasons which are just too lengthy to go into. Tough culturally, tough socially, tough because actually I was literally physically attacked on the doorstep three nights after uh, we moved in. It's the only time I've operated what I might call uh, pastoral percussive ministry um, uh, um, and, and then called the police. I spent two years praying every single day that the Lord would let me love Doncaster. Because I'd gone in as a young dad, and I was quite simply frightened. I have to say to you that the train line from the northeast down to London goes through Doncaster. I go through there um, at least once a fortnight, and often once a week at the moment. Every time I go through Doncaster, this is now 15 years later, my heart leaps for the place. Because God loves to answer those prayers, as we love him with all our hearts. See what love the Father has given to us. This will shape our behavior. Verse 3, all of us who have this hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. As you grasp the hope so you live differently, seek his purity and live in it. And what is purity? Well, purity is living in his image. It is to be like Christ. Eugene Peterson catches this marvelously in the message. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for us. It's not a direct translation, but what a capturing of uh, the sense of the text. All of us who have this hope in him purify ourselves just as he is pure. It's such a different thing to live in holiness out of trying to emulate Christ than it is to try to live in holiness out of a wagging-figured judgmentalism. Does that make any sense? A sense of if you don't do that, you will be caught. You will be found out. Most of us live with this imposter syndrome. I don't think Christ does that for a moment. He says, come, come. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And by the way, that rest is going to involve work like you've never imagined it, but we'll be doing it together. Come and be like me. As I offer him my weakness, so his grace is proved utterly sufficient. This is who we are. This is, if you like those phrases, the summary and teleos, the perfection, the aim, the target of our faith, of our theology. You probably know this, but Karl Barth was speaking at Rockefeller Chapel University of Chicago uh, during a lecture tour in 1962. After his lecture, probably in a set-up question, somebody asked Barth if he could summarize his whole life's work and theology in a sentence. And Barth famously replied, yes, I can. In the words of a song, I learnt at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me. This I know, the Bible tells me so. Learn to be those who receive and then pass on this invitation of love. And so we come to verse 4. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. And I have to say, as I read the passage, it seems to me there is a sudden jump from this great inspirational invitation, which I can speak about hugely warmly, into this, look, if you sin, you're guilty of lawlessness. I don't think the uh, jump is quite as sudden in John's mind as it might appear to us, but notice the shock and allow it to, to shock you because although I hope you, like me, are more interested in good news than bad news, at least in the way that you try to communicate, there is something inside us that wants to check that we've got the bad news right in order that we can be right with it. So... Here, what John chooses to put first. Notice the first dancer on the stage who sets the tone of the dance and movement that will follow, but then follow willingly into what he will say between verses 4 and 9. Sin is lawlessness. No one who commits sin, uh, sorry, no one who abides in him, verse 6, sins, and no one who sins has either seen him or know him. This is challenging teaching. This is said in verse 6, and it's repeated in verse 9. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's sin abi- seed rather abides in them. They cannot sin, because they've been born of God. There's no easy let-off here of saying, look, we're reading John, not Paul. It's all about a dancer here, a figure to... No, no, John brings this figure twice back onto the stage. This is not some passing movement that we're supposed to pick up in some minor theological motif if we're really advanced. This is a really key idea for him. And yet it's profoundly difficult. It's one that's been picked up by modern theologians, most uh, famously for me at least, and I'm intrigued what the humor was last night around the Wesleys, but this is the place where I disagree with the Wesleys because of their theology of perfectionism, which just doesn't seem to me to fit with the flow of the theology of the New Testament, but it does fit with this passage. The problem is that I think it contradicts what happens elsewhere. Think about, uh, for example, the very letter that we're in, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Oh, hang on a sec. No one who abides in him sin, no one who sins has either seen him or know him. What, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, think of uh, Paul. Uh, For example, in Romans 6, who kind of almost takes this line, and then in Romans 7 says, what shall I do? Wretched man that I am. 
and confesses that he too, uh, elsewhere of course, is the worst of sinners. How then are we to interpret this? Well, I want to give you at least six possible interpretations just to prove I've done my homework, although we're going to come back to a seventh, which for me holds out the most hope later. Forgive me galloping through, but you're welcome to my notes if you'd like them. Some scholars say that this passage is focused on a particular group. Sadly, I see no textual evidence for it, although it's very nice to be able to point a finger at other people as being worse sinners than I am. Some people... uh, Stott is one of them, and therefore we need to take this really seriously, although Wesley also said it, uh, says that this passage is focused on a particular sin. For example, willful sin versus involuntary sin. The New International Commentary on the New Testament, for me, argues very persuasively that this can't be right, despite the fact that John Stott said that it was. It cannot, for example, uh, as we see in chapter 5, be around mortal sin versus other sin, because for John, I think, sin is sin. Thirdly, uh, it may be around the tense of the verbs between present continuous, i.e. you do something and you carry on doing it, like saying I breathe, doesn't just mean I'm breathing right at this moment, but I am in the process of breathing, as opposed to the aorist, which can just be once, you know, I slap my forehead. I've hopefully just done it once, if you see what I mean. Again, this is helpful, but it's not consistent, as chapter 5, verse 16 is in the present, and thus the present continuous. Uh, Fourthly, John might well be talking about, and for me this does fit better with John as a theologian, the ideal character of a Christian. Uh, Dodd, for example, would argue this is what he's talking about. And John clearly does use polemic in this sense, or as as some scholars call it, the implicit imperative. This is how you should be. This is how you are called uh, to be. And so we see in 1 John uh, throughout the letter that verses chapters 1, 2, and 3 get increasingly severe. We all sin. I write that in chapter 1, chapter 2, I write this so you may not sin, but if you do, and in chapter 3, I write this um, because you need to realize that those born of God will not sin, and as you reach maturity, this is what you're aiming for. It seems to me if you're going to choose one of these six, this is the one that I would plump for. Fifthly, you might take some logic from the passage, since Christ has appeared to take away sins, verse 5, and destroy the works of the devil, verse 8. Those who abide in Christ, verse 6, or who have God's seed, verse 9, are deemed not guilty when they commit a sinful act. In other words, John might be saying that sin is not sinful when it's redeemed by Christ. And you have to say there is something in this, except that it doesn't quite hold water in the passage. And maybe you can resort back to John being more of a choreographer than a philosopher, but it seems to me that you are getting yourself off the hook with this. And finally, for those of you who hate these kind of uh, slightly more academic investigations of the text, it might be that this is eschatological, and this is the line that Howard Marshall takes in the New International Commentary. He says uh, that this chunk, this pericope, is set in the context of verse 2, which is, of course, around the future revelation of Christ, And what we know is that when Christ is revealed, he will take away sin and you and I will be, as we now long to be, those who find ourselves in a place of freedom from this veil of tears, this weeping and gnashing of teeth, this context of sin that means that not just Paul is a wretched man. What we can be utterly sure of, though, throughout this, whatever line we take on these difficult verses, is that Christ has dealt with sin. That however big the sin, Christ's revelation, his incarnation, 
his death in particular and his resurrection are more than sufficient to deal with it. And whether we are talking about a persistent sin that captures you, whoever you are, because you will have persistent sin, or people that you are pastoring who say to you, I cannot get out of this situation, or the big things in the world that we pray but we really struggle to have faith for, we know that Christ's life and death and resurrection is more than sufficient. You are washed in the blood and you are made new. You are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You are the foretaste of the new creation, the coming heaven and earth, when all will be restored. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, is it 12.9 or 9.12? I always have a mental block. My grace is sufficient for you. And I love the way he goes on. For my power is made perfect in weakness. It's when you're at your most weak that actually you discover the enormity of the power of Christ's work. We can be sure that Christ is sufficient. Verse 10, we come to a transition verse, uh, which are why three of the verses are in grey, and I'm going to have to pick up my speed, forgive me. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. This test of love will be John's core message, not just of this chapter, but throughout, I want to argue, his work in the New Testament. This is the core of John's understanding of Christ. You are to love one another. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so we see in verses 11 to 17, this understanding worked out. It is Jesus' message, and therefore it's John's message. And so we see love in action is the only true form of love. Note in verse 14 that our knowledge of salvation comes through living in love. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. John is raising the stakes in a major way here and saying there is no such thing as a Christian in theory. If you want to know whether it works, ask yourself whether you are loving your brother and sister. This is how we know. Secondly, verse 16, you are to look at the cross. The cross is the ultimate revelation of God's love. Now, I don't know the theological sore toes of your generation well enough to know whether I have just stamped on them. But if I say that in a gathering of evangelicals of my generation, there would be some muttered theological ouches. The cross is the ultimate revelation of God's love. Because the liberal agenda is very often to uh, take the cross and say what we see when we look at the cross more than anything is God's love and therefore all we are called to do is to love one another. And we, as, as in me and my generation of evangelicals, I think are in great danger of taking verses like this and saying actually we can't be serious about them because if we diminish the cross simply to being a revelation of God's love, then we begin to lose the power of the atonement and God's uh, work in overcoming sin and the need to proclaim repentance and all of the stuff that we absolutely believe about the cross. And whilst there's some wisdom in that, 
I want to say to you that actually I think there's also tremendous danger in that. Because we need to be honest when we look at this passage and say, actually, for those of us who are classic Anglican evangelicals, the cross and the incarnation appear the wrong way round in this particular passage. The incarnation, the appearing of Christ that we see particularly in verse 5 and 8, deal with sin. And the cross reveals the love of God. Now, just in parentheses, so that you don't think I'm completely dodgy and stop listening, am I suggesting, therefore, that all of what we believe about the atonement actually is not true? No, please, I'm not saying that at all. I absolutely believe that as Christ gave his life on the cross, he was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, that it is his blood uh, that washes us clean, that it's through Christ's death and indeed resurrection, I think, if you read Paul, that we find ourselves forgiven, freed and welcomed into the new covenant. I absolutely believe that. But I do think that sometimes our determination to hold on to that, which is right, will blinker us from some of the wider things that the New Testament is saying about the cross as well. Does that make sense? Because we are so determined to hold on to something which must remain central, that cruciocentricity of the scriptures is absolutely there, we can sometimes be blind to passages like this that says, will you just spend some time looking at the cross and allowing your heart, your mind, to be blown by the extraordinary love of God that we see revealed here? Will you allow your understanding of the cross to be expanded, not contracted for a moment, but expanded in order that our love of Christ compels you, that you will go to the very ends of the earth in order to uh, bring salvation? Why is it that all the large evangelical churches in England, by the vast majority, are in the southeast of England where people want to live? I want to suggest to you humbly that it's because we don't often allow the love of Christ to compel us. Our 19th century missionary forebears used to pack their equipment when they went to the mission field. They used to pack what they needed to take with them into a coffin because that's the way that they expected to return from the mission field and it was a more efficient way of packing. Allow the love of Christ to compel you Bishop Martin um, Wharton, Warner, I always get confused between those same, previous Bishop of Newcastle, when I was first Warden of Cramner Hall, I used to go and try and woo him, so I'd go and have coffee while he puffed his, puffed his pipe. And one of the first times I saw him, he said to me, Mark, can I ask you a question? And I thought, oh, what am I in for now? And he said, I said, of course you can. He said, why don't people come to me and say what they used to say to me regularly until about 10 years ago? And I said, well, Bishop, it kind of depends what they used to say to you regularly until about 10 years ago. He said, oh, until about 10 years ago, I used to get once or twice a year a priest coming into my study and saying to me, Bishop, where can't you get anyone to go? Because that's where I'd like to be. And I have to say, I, I sat there deeply convicted. Newcastle really is not an evangelical diocese, but he was just observing of clergy today, of all traditions, that we have lost that sense of, I want to go to the places other people are not going. And we as evangelicals surely should be among the foremost of that. The love of Christ compels me. I will go to the very ends of the earth in order that one might find salvation and life. I'm getting completely lost with my notes, but you'll probably hear where my heart is. Let me move on because of time to verse 18, another transition verse. Let us love in truth and action. Please never use the excuse that you are loving in theory. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. 
Which means that the last session, which was brilliant, is the springboard, not the ending point, of uniting the tribes. Have coffee. Please have coffee. Talk. Disagree. But then go the next step further and do something profound to let them know they're loved. Talk to Mark about what we were trying to do at Cramner, and he'll tell you we didn't get it all right. Very, very far from it. But my consistent thing, and please call me out if I'm wrong, Mark, was we will love each other and we will be gracious. And we will do it in practice. And about the only thing I ever got cross with at college, I mean, lots of things I get exercised about, but about, I genuinely got angry was where there was gracelessness. Because truth without grace is not Christian truth, and grace without truth is not Christian grace. And although it's a struggle to hold them together, that is what we are called to be and to do, even if it tears us apart. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Truth is a central partner to love, but never an alternative. We are those with a Protestant head and a pietist heart, and we may not lose the link. And I have to say to you, that's why it's so problematic that we as evangelicals are painted as those who hate homosexuals. This is what I actually said. It's why it's so problematic that we are painted as those who hate homosexuals. You see, you can throw lots of insults at me, and I'll hold my hands up and smile. Bible basher, yep, that's me. Jesus freak, yep, that's me. God squad, yep, that's me. Happy clappy, yep, that's me. Homophobe, no, that is not me. Because I do not see the way of hatred in the scriptures. And so the challenge for me is how then do I live out love in a way which is challenging? And I don't know the answer, but I'll tell you this. The answer isn't. Little children, let us love, but not in word or speech, but in truth or action. And forgive me, I realize I'm raising huge questions. How do we live this out? Well, three ways. Verses 23 and 24, in belief and in obedience. Verse 23, again, is something of a surprise as we come to it because we jump in our minds back to another part of John's writing. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. It's not quite what John says here in verse 23. This is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Love, you see, is always linked with belief. That's why the sexuality issue is so difficult. Well, we know we can't do that, but we know we can't do that either. And so how do we live in this space? Partly, I have to say, just to give you the beginning of an answer, by resolving to be really, really nice to each other when we get it just a bit wrong. <laughs> because we're going to. And I'll get it wrong and you'll get it wrong and we'll get it wrong in different ways. And the easiest thing to do would be to take out the frustration of that, which is largely frustration at my getting it wrong on you. Because calling you a blithering idiot makes it less obvious to my own heart that I am an even blitheringer idiot. Verse 23 then, in belief and obedience. And I have to say to you, obedience, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that we have in the modern church. But time uh, it, um, uh, rather defeats me. Because of heavy shepherding, the generation before mine, we've lost the ability to call for obedience, not to me, 
but to Christ. I used to say again to students at Cramner Hall, when your bishop asks you to do something, ask not the question, is God calling me to do this, but rather the question, is God not calling me to do this? Not because your bishop is infallible, but because you are determined to practice obedience to God, and you will make the assumption that if you are in holy orders, God might well speak to you through the church in which you are in holy orders. Be one who is known for going to the ends of the earth in order that you might obey what God is calling you to do. And if you get it a bit wrong, you are going to anyway. Belief and obedience. Verse 24, as a clarion call to this generation, all who obey his commandments abide in him and he abides in them. That's the first way we pick up this task to love. <coughs> Secondly, by clarity of conscience. I'm not quite sure why I put these these way around in my notes because I probably should have just followed the order of the text. Verses 19 to 21. And by this we will know that we're from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us for we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. This is fascinatingly subjective. John has a really high place for the conscience here, which, of course, I think is picked up elsewhere uh, by Paul. It's one of the things we need to rediscover is that emotional intelligent, emotionally intelligent confidence as well as intellectually intelligent confidence. And it takes us right back to the beginning of the passage to allow our hearts to be taken with wonder and awe at the love of God. The whole passage is set in relationship with God, who will and who does speak through the scriptures and by his spirit to his children, and gives us a conscience in order that we might live in the glorious liberty of God as we live in daily repentance and new life. And third, the third way that we know that we're living in love, in truth, and in action. Well, we'll come back to the third in just a moment, because before we do, I just want to offer you the seventh little take on verses 4 to 11, which I can't say to you is absolutely perfect, but which does seem to me to fit with the rest of the text, and that's why I put it in here uh, rather than earlier. And it arises from uh, the end of verse 4. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And this is the main reason that you've got the Greek text in the middle, apart from knowing that Lee would want to work from it, uh, but I actually just wanted you to notice the final word in verse 4 there in the Greek. Amartia, sin, estenhe, is the um, anomia. Nomos, law, a, the little bit that you put in front of a word in Greek in order to make it negative. Sin is non-lawfulness, is anti-lawfulness, is the other to lawfulness. Does that, can you just see? I mean, I don't want to overmake the point because I'm slightly, slightly stretching it linguistically. But just notice that sin is lawlessness. Verse 4 follows verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3 are all about our identity in Christ before God and our relationship to him. Verse 4, sin is lawlessness. It's a word that isn't used very much in the New Testament, but when it is, it refers to the devil. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. What is the law in the New Testament? The law is the law of Christ, the law of love. The new commandment that I give to you is that you might love one another. What we think of very often when we read the word law in the New Testament is Paul's use of law referring to Old Testament law. 
But I just want to ponder with you, how might it be if John here is picking up a new covenantal understanding of lawfulness? Sin is living against the law of Christ, living against the covenant of Christ. Michael Tate, um, who's a lovely theologian, in his wonderfully named uh, The End of the Law, the Messianic Torah in the Pseudegrapha, I think I've said that right word, that final word correctly, suggests this. In fact, St. John probably regards him, that is Jesus, as the embodiment of the Torah. What would it mean if what John was saying in verses 4 to 10 was actually around relationship before it being around action? Sin is unlawedness in the sense of sin being living outside relationship with Christ. It would certainly fit better with the flow of the passage. You see, I want to suggest to you there are two perspectives we can have on sin, and I'm going to come back and suggest we need both of them, but notice it in regard to this passage. Firstly, we can regard sin as being something which is absolute, black and white, and enacted. I say a naughty word, I have sinned. Do you see what I mean? I've done it and I've crossed a line. Or sin could be primarily covenantal. Imagine, don't imagine too hard, I'm a married man, I'm very happily married. Imagine there were a young woman to whom I took a fancy and started behaving inappropriately. What's the primary sin that I have committed with regard to my wife? Is the primary sin that I have done something that I shouldn't have done with another woman... Or is the primary sin that I have broken covenant with my wife with whom I'm in covenant relationship? And of course, immediately you say, well, it's both. And I say, well, no, you're absolutely right. But I do want to suggest to you that the primary sin is actually the breaking of the covenant. Does that make sense? Because the other things flow from it. It's a bit like if you've got a disease, you can treat the symptoms, but it's much better to treat the disease. And here is my big idea I just want to leave you with. I just wonder whether this passage opens not only a really helpful reflection on what sin is for us today as a primary way of understanding it, but also opens a really helpful way for us to communicate what sin is in a world which is absolutely obsessed by relationship, but day by day increasingly loses the ability to hold faithful relationship. If sin is primarily lawlessness in the sense that I'm talking about in this passage... Everything will flow from it, but we will behave and react differently. Let me give you an illustration. I ride a very big motorcycle. I managed to get it into the torque, Mark. It's a 1200cc BMW. I love it. It does 0 to 60 in 3.2 seconds. The speedometer is about this big, and I'm a middle-aged man with failing eyesight. When I'm driving past a speed camera, I can focus my attention on the speedometer and make sure I'm down below the speed speed limit. But most of the time, when you're riding a bike of any size, your eyes need to be on the road. Now, before you get the idea that I'm some kind of yob hooligan bishop, I am am an advanced motorcyclist, I'll have you know. I've, I've done huge amounts of advanced bike training. I ride blood bikes with flashing blue lights around the place. I know how to ride, and I know how to ride within the speed limit. But actually, I'm not looking at the speed limit, and I couldn't tell you that every single moment my speedometer is below 30 miles an hour. It'll be around there, and it'll be safe, 
but it's only when you're going past the speed camera that you actually make sure you're doing 28 miles an hour. Indeed, my daughter freaked out a year or two back and said, I will only come on the back of your bike on this thing, which she really wants to do, if you promise to stay within the speed limit. I said, do you mean I absolutely promise I will never break it? And she said, yes. And so we set out down the road at 20 miles an hour. And she thumped me on the back and said, Dad, you're being silly. I want you to do 30. I said, no, if you want me to promise I will not break the speed limit, I need to sit at 20. Because literally, within about 0.3 of a second, if you tweak the throttle, you've no idea how powerful this machine is unless you're a bike, you're literally up above the speed limit. I said, I can ride within the speed limit in terms of being in good relationship with it. I can ride such that a police officer would be completely happy. But if you want a literal, I'm not going to go even a moment over it, this is what we need to do. Because it's two different ways of relating to the speed limit. Does, does that make sense to you? And I want to suggest to you there's something like that going on here that I increasingly think God is less and less bothered about those small things that I do which actually are sin, and of course they matter, but I repent of them and God forgives me, than he is about that attitude of heart that draws me into relationship with him so that when I start wandering away, he's going, oh, Mark, come back, come back. That actually the freedom that he talks about is living in relationship that means that actually the specific sins we, we, we commit get quickly addressed and sought out. Why? Because our conscience begins to speak to them because the Holy Spirit of the living God is actually speaking inside us. It's actually a whole way of drawing together this passage. Does that make any sense to you? And so it is that those who are born of God do not sin because we live in that covenant relationship with him. There is a necessary theocentricity to our understanding of sin. Sin is sin not because of some cosmic absolute out with the nature of God, but because of a breaking of relationship, covenant relationship with him. It's always seemed to me the error captured in that otherwise marvellous picture that C.S. Lewis paints in Aslan being sacrificed for us. That this is not some ancient law over which God has no control, but rather his very nature and heart being lived out. And just finally to note that this does make sense of an otherwise unexplainable for me uh, bit of the scriptures where it talks um, of the unforgivable sin or the mortal sin in 1 John chapter uh, 4 verse 17. Because actually what is the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is being cut off from that relationship with God himself. It is that which cuts us off from the place of grace. What would that mean apart from resolving the issues in passage? Well, firstly, it would mean that it was necessary that if we were preaching about sin, we would need to speak about incarnation as well as crucifixion, which seems to me a really important thing for our generation. Secondly, I think it would give a new shape to our personal discipline of confession that would actually shape the way that we challenge the world about sin, the world, and the devil. And thirdly, perhaps it would give us new tools as we seek to proclaim a gospel of good news in a manner that can be understood <coughs> by this generation. Which brings us back to the third and very final point, verse 24b. How do we know that we are living in Christ? By this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit that he has given us. This, it seems to me, is the true mark of orthodoxy for John and for Luke, and I would argue, too, for Paul. The very presence of the Spirit of God, although we will choose to interpret that in different ways, is the mark of the child of God, as we seek to live with a Protestant head and a pietist heart, faithfully proclaiming his good news in the world today. Forgive me, my friends, I've gone on too long, but may God bless you as we seek to live out this good news in our world. Amen. Amen. That was great. Don't go away. Let's just see if there's... We do have a few minutes for questions. If anyone has questions or...
comments or things you'd like to throw in for us to discuss on the back of that? It was a tour de force, so there was plenty in there for us to think about. Yeah. 